Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Good afternoon, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking at the break when I was uh, younger. Um, I went on this retreat where uh, the teacher said, if you feel when you're sitting, that, uh, well, the schedule was different. It was 45 minutes sitting, 45 minutes walking, 45 minutes sitting, 45 minutes walking. And, uh, and the walking was outside. So uh, the teacher said, if you really feel when you're sitting like you're kind of in the zone, and really calm and starting to get concentrated, then don't do the walking. Just stay sitting during the walking. So I thought, that's a brilliant idea. So I decided that for the retreat, I wouldn't, get up. I would just sit. And um, the food was so bad I didn't have bowel movements anyway, so I could just sit forever. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I remember like at one point just like my whole, my legs were just completely numb and I was like, this must be the beginning of samadhi. <laughs> and uh, the point of all this was um, the Dharma talks were in the evening. And I was so exhausted by the time the Dharma talks came around, I would say to myself, finally the entertainment. <laughs> finally a break. So, um, why am I telling you this? Because um, uh, it's really important that when we shift from one practice to the other, like sitting, walking, eating, bathroom, whatever, that you don't say to yourself, oh, now this practice is done, and now I'm going to have a break. But that you start to see that you actually are bringing the same quality of attention to everything. And I feel like maybe that's the only thing that I'm teaching. And that way, and I always say this, but when you come back into the room and you sit down, it doesn't feel like you're, oh, okay, we're starting to practice again. Like when the bell rings, it shouldn't feel like, oh, okay, now we're gonna, now we're gonna start again. But actually, that you're bringing the same kind of continuity of attention to everything, the same ability to be close to what's happening, and also not to hold on to it. So, that's what we're training. There's a there's a good story about this. Uh, there's a woman <clears throat> who's a very uh, good meditation teacher in um, Hawaii. 
she still teaches. She was a mother of four, four people, four girls. I, I have two boys and something on the way. And I'm like totally terrified of having a girl. I can't imagine four girls to me, seems like. Some of you can give me some feedback on this later, but uh, anyways. Um, um, what's her name again? Somebody know? Yeah. She has a beautiful name. It'll come, anyways. So, uh, do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. She so, was a nun before. Yeah, there's this great story where she, so she, she was a single mom, so she went on a retreat. Uh, it was very hard for her to get coverage. Imagine. Well, you can imagine. Yeah. Girls? Okay, so this story is for Twins. you. Yeah, Twins, okay. So even worse. So, <laughs> so, so she goes on a retreat, and then at the end of the retreat, the teacher says the same thing we all do, which is, go home and sit every morning. Wake up and sit. You can do it. So she put up her hand and said, I'm a mom of four girls. I can't. A single mom. I can't. I can't do it. And the teacher said the same thing we all say. Yes, you can. <laughs> you can do it. You can, you can wake up early in the morning and you can sit. You can do it. And so she put up her hand again and said, I can't. I can't. So then after the retreat ended, the, she went up to the teacher, um, a famous teacher, um, Munindra is, is the teacher's name, and said, will you come live with me? And, the, and he said, okay. So they left the retreat center and he moved in with her for a week. And on the second day, uh, he came to her and said, uh, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way. There's no way. <laughs> but I'll show you what you can do. And uh, so he started shadowing her. Uh, when they did the cliche thing of washing the dishes, um, she, he, she learned how to wash dishes. And when she walked uh, between bedrooms in the hallway, she did walking meditation. Uh, and the story, as I heard it, goes that uh, she didn't do another retreat for like six or seven years after that. And when she did it, she had the best concentration of anyone on the retreat. That's a nice story, hey? Mm -hmm. So that everything is our training. So yesterday I spoke about uh, the first two ox-herding <coughs> images and poems. Uh, the first one is searching for the ox. Did everyone have a chance to look at them? Yeah. And the second one is uh, finding the traces of the ox. And I spoke about how uh, the door of intimacy uh, is always open. Uh, but we cover it up all the time. And then I talked about how there are various uh, attitudes that creep into our practice um, and that uh, our perception is never clean. It's always biased. And so it's important that uh, in our practice we're able to notice the quality of how we're paying attention and refining that all the time. Uh, then I talked about how our insight really needs to be embodied. And I ended with um, the surprise ending, which is that uh, one way of reading the ox herding pictures, if you don't read the poems, is that the ox is hiding. But the surprise ending yesterday was, it's not the ox that's been hiding, it's you.
And you can even see, like, hiding from your own self. So uh, this practice that we do uh, is not an aggressive practice. I hope that uh, you don't skip the sits. I mean, skip the walks and keep sitting. If you do, I'll pick you up. Um, and we're not trying to make thoughts and feelings and sensations disappear, which is a kind of aggression. And yet at the same time, it's important that uh, your mind quiets and deepens. Uh, if we don't allow thoughts and emotions to float away um, uh, and, and, and churn us over and over and over again, um, forever and ever and ever, if we keep allowing that to happen, then we just continue to get driven by our identity and all the passions associated by that uh, theoretical self that we identify with. And if you do that, if you sit and you just get carried away all the time, you're probably wasting a lot of time on your cushion. I know I've sat retreats where I've just spaced out and watched the movie of me the whole time. Um, but eventually, uh, we'll find some peace and part of our practice is to intensify that peace. This is the third uh, noble truth, which is uh, to really know that experience of stopping, to really know that experience of peace. So um, I'm gonna cover two more stages today. Uh, stage three, which is uh, seeing the ox, and stage four, which is catching the ox. Um, I want to show you just the image, if you can see it, of stage three. It's just a big ass. <laughs> can everybody see that? Yeah. Uh, and, and the poem, uh, which is here on the side, um, says, uh, The Song of the Yellow Oriole. I don't know, if, do you have Orioles here? Mm, big. Big Orioles here? Yeah. So the song of the yellow Oriole echoes in the forest. Do you feel like these poems are written about this landscape? Is anyone getting this sense yet? The song of the yellow Oriole echoes in the forest. Warm sun, gentle breeze, willow green along the shore. The ox has no place to turn in the brambles. So the ass is sticking out. You've seen it but its head and the rest of its body and horns are all in the brambles. It seems like the ox is trying to depart. We've seen something, but then it wants to slip away. Can you see this in your own experience? You catch a glimpse of uh, that stopping, and at this stage, that's all you can do. You can recognize that there's this glimpse of the possibility of non-reactivity. And what I was saying yesterday is the third noble truth, uh, knowing non-reactivity, and the fourth noble truth, the path, are exactly the same thing. 
Because as soon as you're able to know the space of non-reactivity, that's the path. That's the path right there. So a path opens up, as I said yesterday, when we're able to, to touch that space of non-reactivity. So my understanding is that uh, this image is about being completely awake for just a moment. And everybody here, even if you have no technique, you will have this experience. Maybe it's in this room, maybe it's eating, maybe it's by the water, <coughs> swimming, whatever. You'll have these moments where you're completely awake. Moment of non-reactivity. That's the path. That's the stage. You see the ass. Let's just call it seeing the ass. <laughs> There was a famous teacher named Guishan, and he gave uh, a student, a monk, um, a koan. He said to the monk, What's your true face before you were born? And the monk said, uh, Okay, I'll, I'll take that in. And then the monk went back to the teacher and said, uh, Can you explain it to me? <laughs> There's a lot of stories like this, where the, the student gets a koan and then goes back to the teacher and says, could you just tell me like the answer? <laughs> There's actually, uh, uh, there was an Israeli um, academic who was a Zen practitioner who was so fed up with how koans were taught that he wrote the answers to all of them and published it. <laughs> Which, of course, is impossible. But anyways, um, he obviously didn't. He missed this one. Because what the teacher said to him, uh, Guishan, was, um, if I'm explicit with you, if I explain it to you explicitly, then uh, in the future you'll resent me for it. Plus, if I tell you the answer, uh, it will be my answer and not your answer. That's why I tell some of you, when you come in for an interview and I give you a practice to work with, just keep it a secret. Don't tell anybody. Not like we're trying to start a cult here or something and you should keep your... But that could be interesting. We could talk about that. Um, but more that only you can answer this practice. Only you can answer this practice. So um, the story goes is that uh, the monk couldn't work with it and uh, just didn't know where to go with it. What's my original face? And then uh, decided that he would, um, all he would do for his practice from now on is he would sweep the courtyard in front of the shrine by the bamboo forest. Where's Anna? Are you listening to this? So this was his job, her job. She would just sweep the courtyard in front of the shrine. We have all this is right. All of these stories are from this property. <laughs> and um, one day she's sweeping the courtyard and a pebble flings off the edge of the broom and hits the bamboo and goes pop. 
<laughs> and she hears the sounds and wakes up. That's the story. There's a footnote after that. Apparently, after she had this experience, she went back. Uh, she went into the shrine room, and then lit incense and thanked the teacher for never giving her the answer. But one of the things in this story that um, they don't get into, which they never get into in these stories, is they never say how long she practiced <laughs> with the koan. Like, did she sweep the courtyard for nine years? Or was it like nine days? You, you never know. So um, the point of the story is that uh, we're all holding on so tight to our viewpoints. And so we have such a narrow experience of our life. Because everything about our life just is pivoting around making a me. How can we love people? If all we're doing is filtering them through, like, what I need. How can we see our kids if it's always through this filter of these stories we have about ourselves as parents or ourselves as children or what our kids could be? So, um, if we uh, meet it right, everything, including the bamboo, including sweeping, is an opportunity for awaken, awakening. Everything. In the poem, <clears throat> um, uh, there's this wonderful line, uh, warm sun, gentle breeze, willows green along the shore. Have you guys been feeling that? Warm sun, gentle breeze. Um, that's actually my favorite part of this poem. Because what's the warm sun and the gentle breeze? It's um, impermanence. It's what you can't jar, what you can't preserve. Imagine going out with a jar and saying, okay, I'm going to get a little gentle breeze and warm sun. <laughs> So you can't run outside and preserve the warm sun or the gentle breeze. You can't do this with your relationships either. You can't do this with your kids. I remember uh, in 2008 when my older son's mother and I split up, um, he would uh, stay half the week at her house and then half the week. And uh, I was living with my, my good friend and um, uh, I didn't know yet where I was going to move. So uh, we slept in the same bed at the beginning. And uh, so at night I would read him a book and then he would fall asleep. Uh, someone told me once that uh, until your kids are 14, when they sleep, they always look like infants. Is this true? I don't have anyone quite almost that age. But. So anyways, he looked like an infant, and so I just used to look at him when he was sleeping. He had really, really blonde hair on his arms. Yeah. And I remember at the time uh, looking at him, and part of it was that I was scared I would lose him because... 
we were in the separation. I thought, oh, what if he doesn't end up living with me? Or, you know. So I was like really hyper aware of impermanence. So I used to watch him sleep because for me it was like settling. It's like, oh, right now, he's my son. Even though his feet smell. <laughs> when your kids turn five, their feet smell. You notice this? So it's like they're really cute, but there's also this thing. <laughs> so, um, the warm sun, the gentle breeze, uh, the people we love, uh, it's all impermanent. And because it's impermanent, it's beautiful. It's precisely because it's impermanent that we're so crazy about it. Your body is aging, and because it's aging, it's beautiful. So we need to enter more deeply to see how everything is alive. This river is a living organism. Your mind is a living organism. And intimacy means having a relationship with this fluidity, but not leaving anything out. Not compartmentalizing. I remember when I spent time in a monastery in Japan. And um, when we would bathe, uh, the practice was uh, you, you fill the, this basin up, so it's only three quarters full. You never fill it up all the way. Just, you just take enough, just what you need for bathing. And uh, then you wash, and then when you have, at the end you have this dirty water, and you take the water that's dirty, and the method was when you pour it out, you pour it towards yourself. And if you've ever done orioki practice, uh, which is a, 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 a monastic form of eating, uh, whenever you have the, the dirty water at the end, when you pour it, you also always pour it towards yourself. And I never really under... It always seemed confusing. You have it's something dirty. Why would you pour... And then I started to realize, oh, because you're not making it separate. It's to include it. So I think this is a good metaphor. Good training for us. Whatever's showing up, we can include it. And this helps us uh, have some self-respect also. Because it gives us a deeper version of ourselves, a wider version of ourselves. And I think it's good to do this when you bow, too. I encourage you to really get into this bowing practice. Yesterday I said one thing you can work on with bowing is find this balance between the form of the bowing but also completely being yourself. Can everybody see how there's a few years of practice there? <laughs> and also, you can add to that, when you bow, to have some reverence for that moment. When you come back to your breathing, that's bowing. It's having, having some reverence for your life. Otherwise, you're in this mindset of trying to get somewhere. Have you seen that mind today? Trying to get to the other shore. 
There's a good Mahayana joke where there's someone standing on the shore and they see someone on the other shore and so they yell out to them, Hey you! And they say, Yeah? How'd you get to the other shore? Well, where are you trying to get to? I'm trying to get to the other shore. And the guy says, You are on the other shore. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, a lot of the times we're trying to get to the other shore just because we're afraid of this shore. And in the interviews yesterday, fear came up for lots of people. And um, so much of what we're afraid of, you know, is a phantom. It's not real. It's a projection of something in the future. And um, when we aren't really getting down into the body with some courage and some stability, then um, we never really find out what's worth being afraid of. We're just in the ghost world. So, um, as I said yesterday, you can be intimate with any mental state. So fear arises, feel that fear in your body. You don't have to decide what it's all about. Human beings love to decide what everything's about. We're meaning-making creatures. I went for a short walk finally today and uh, I saw some cattle and I was thinking to myself I don't think cattle have unreal lives like a human being can live an unreal life they feel their life as not being real but I think we might be the only creatures who can have an unreal life So when you do this practice, we're investigating underneath this realm of uh, meaning, moment-to-moment awareness. And uh, there's two sides to it. One is you investigate, look deeply. And the other side is uh, you receive, when you investigate, a transmission of meaning. The meaning doesn't come from you, it comes from the other side just like walking. The stepping seems like it comes from you, but actually the support's coming from the other side. So the practice is active and it's also passive. You see? If you do the active work of investigating and coming back over and over, then you will get transmission. A transmission of a deeper meaning. And this is deeply satisfying in your heart because we're all here because our heart is longing for something true. And the longer that you practice, uh, the more that you will see there are layers of depth that you had no idea. You can't see till you're closer. And I think that this longing to go deeper is actually essential. It's the religious project of our heart which is to know what's a true. Especially now, you know, I, I, some of you might know, but I, I do lots of work with younger people. I've been trying to work with younger people. 
And one of the things I hear a lot from people when we talk about uh, distraction and technology is that people like around the age of 20, the thing they most want is something deep. That's what they say. Like, what do they crave most? Just some kind of experience that's deeper. So, um, I feel like uh, we study and we practice and the transmission that we get is from our ancestors who've also done this practice. You know, every night uh, we go outside. I've never done that outside before. We've always done this inside. It's really beautiful outside, actually. We go outside and uh, Emily is doing a fantastic job. Yeah. The, the woman who used to always lead this in Toronto, her name is Rose. Some of you know her. And she's Italian. So I kept thinking to myself, who on earth is going to be able to lead this? And then I thought, uh, Emily can do it. <laughs> so, so as soon as I chose Emily, I, 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 I wrote to Rose and I said, Rose, an Italian's taking over your job. <laughs> Every night uh, we acknowledge people who are ill or have died. And you may have people on the list that uh, you love or you've lost. Um, and it's important to feel them uh, in your practice because they're with you practicing. They haven't gone anywhere. And um, in Japan, uh, <clears throat> you can see this in Thailand too, you know, they're not so big on God, but they're really into ancestors. They're really into peace with the dead. Uh, if you go to Thailand, you'll see on every front lawn is, a, is a, an altar for the ancestors. It's really, really important. And um, as we get older, <clears throat> uh, we start losing people. And the fact is, the majority of humans belong to the dead. They've passed. So when a person uh, is ill or dying, um, you need to celebrate their life somehow and acknowledge it. So that's why we do that. A couple people ask why we do that. And um, sometimes when people say the word mindfulness, um, I translate it in my mind as mourning. Because I think it's a, I think it's a better term actually. I don't love the term mindfulness because it feels like your mind, like your mind. Do you know what I mean? Like if you say, be mindful of the breath, people like go from here to here, like to find the breath. So I used to always think about uh, using the term whenever, whenever I was going to say mindfulness, I would say, I would, I would just say awake instead. So be awake to your breathing. And it's kind of more like embodied, I feel like. But sometimes I also feel like another good word instead of mindfulness is mourning, is letting go. Because what is mindfulness practice? It's actually the ability to mourn. The, the ability to let go of what's dead uh, in us, that's circling around and around and wants to be let go of. Like some spirit that can't leave until you acknowledge it.
And so mindfulness is about uh, balancing our attention so it's not caught. It's not sticking to anything. And it's not so much about being in the present moment, which is the hip way of talking about it. Because there's no present moment. As soon as you say present moment, it's gone. But mindfulness is more an embodied practice of just a balanced awareness. Balanced awareness. And you can have a balanced awareness, not just of the present, but you can have memories of the past and have a balanced awareness of those memories. Or you can have prospective mindfulness, which is to think about the future. Not just now, but it's good, it's important to plan for the future. But you can do it with a balanced awareness. So, when you sit, if you feel your breathing, this is, this is what this poem is saying. If you feel your breath, and you feel the movement, the fluidity of life. And I always want to add to this, even if your technique sucks, then you will bump in to spaciousness. You'll just bump into it. You'll be sitting, and then suddenly you'll be like, oh, it's really open. And it's profound to, to notice this spaciousness. And what's left in that spacious awareness is non-reactivity. You can't really say what it is. Um, It's not you, but it's also not not you. And it's not that and not not that. (laughs) And when you bump into spaciousness, one of the things that begins to change, which is the most important thing, is your conduct. Meditation might be the root of what we're doing here, but I always say that the most important thing actually is your conduct. We're training so that we have a beautiful bodhisattva conduct. So that we can learn how to let go when we're in conflict, let go when we're stuck, And maybe in the end, we'll learn how to let go when we're dying. One of my favorite poets, Ryo Khan, uh, when he was dying, he wrote a death poem, which is my favorite death poem. Um, there was a practice in Zen that when you're dying, you write a death poem, and you share it with your teacher, and they tell you whether it's, it's good or not. <laughs> I remember one of my, my teachers, Enkyo Roshi, had a friend who was dying, and I said, how's she doing? And she's like, well, the poem's coming along. <laughs> she hasn't got a lot of time, but it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> Here's Ryokan's death poem. Um, do you guys know the story of Ryokan? Do you know Ryokan at all? Japanese poet, beautiful poet, had an awakening experience, uh, moved into a cabin in the middle of nowhere, and the only thing he did was write poems and play with little kids. That was his favorite thing to do in his old age, was just to play with little kids and make fun of rich people. <laughs> Anyways, here's his death poem. Uh, showing now its front side, then showing its back. Falling maple leaf. Isn't that nice? 
Showing the front side, then showing the back, a falling movement. So simple. Maybe when you're dying, you'll be like, did I do a will? <laughs> I don't know what it is. So, the purpose of uh, this third teaching is when you see the ox, when you see the mind, when you see that clarity, a stop and really notice it. Know it. Know that experience of non-reactivity. And then the fourth, catching the ox. Catching the ox. And I'll put these up later so you can see them. Here's the poem. Through extraordinary effort you seize the ox. Still its will is forceful and its body spirited. Sometimes it runs into the high mountains. Other times it just disappears into the mist. And I think the most important word in that teaching is sometimes. Do you notice that? As soon as you go towards it, has anyone had this experience? Like you have just this moment of calm and then you've been like, oh, I'm really like good at this. <laughs> yeah? I, sh I should actually become a teacher. <laughs> so, um, 13th century Zen teacher Dogen, who's the master of teaching on time. Uh, here's what he says. For the time being, stand on the top of the highest peak. For the time being, proceed along the bottom of the deepest ocean. For the time being, three heads and eight arms. For the time being, an eight or sixteen foot golden Buddha body. For the time being, a staff or a whisk. For the time being, a pillar or a lantern. For the time being, the son of Jack or Jill. For the time being, the earth and the sky. So what's he saying here? He's saying, for the time being, you're in samadhi. And then, the other side. First this side, then the other side. Some students are really into non-duality. All they care about is non-duality. So I can sniff it out. And so I'm after them for the other side. They get the non-duality. So I want to see the other side. Taxes. Your body. Others. And some people, they're only in the dual side. So I push them because I want them to see the non-dual side. So that's what's being said here. For the time being, you're, you're at the top of the mountain, just non-duality. And then, sometimes you're at the bottom of a polluted ocean. Do you know that feeling? You had that today? You had both today? Sometimes three heads and eight arms, which is like a wrathful deity. Has anyone had that today? Like, I, I seriously, on retreat, I've had experiences of never hating somebody so much. <laughs> Often it's a roommate. <laughs> um, for the time being, a 16-foot golden Buddha. Sometimes you're just a column. 
or sometimes you're a staff or a whisk or sometimes you're a lantern. Sometimes you're just the kid. This is say Jean and Lee, which is basically like saying like Smith and Jones. I don't know what in French, what would be like the most common last name in French. Pierre Jean. Okay, there you go. So, um, or for the time being, earthy, or for the time being, sky. So everything is for the time being. And this is really good meditation instruction. When you're caught up and it's hard to get back to your breath, you can just see what's happening as a moment in time and say to yourself, oh, for the time being, anxiety. And then you come back. Oh, for the time being, uh, irritation. For the time being, missing home. For the time being, really not missing home. I joked with uh, somebody uh, yesterday in the interview who's a mom, and I said, uh, now you get to pee all by yourself. (laughs) (laughs) See, there's so many little freedoms. I remember uh, the first time I wore robes, I said to my friend Koshin, when you wear robes, do you wear underwear? And he said, Michael, that's the great freedom. (laughs) Please wear bathing suits. Um, so, uh, to sum up so far, um, we start to touch, uh, are you okay over there, Robert? Yeah. <laughs> Mention a bathing suit and Robert's so happy. <laughs> so, um, stage three is, um, you see it, you start to see that calmness that comes. And stage four is that as soon as you start to go towards it, as soon as you want to hold on to it, it's gone. It's gone. So in that place of calmness, no clinging. No clinging. No holding on. And how this is usually taught in Dharma is through a deity that uh, I think I saw one somewhere of Manjushri. Is there a Manjushri somewhere, Gail? Where did I see it? Was it at your house, maybe? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe in March. So Manjushri is the uh, day is a mythical figure. Um, a bodhisattva means uh, they're working for everyone's enlightenment. And um, uh, more on that later. And 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 um, they have a sword. They're carrying a sword. And I always think they're the most inspiring member of our Sangha, uh, Manjushri. Uh, Manjushri embodies what it means uh, to see life in a very grand way. And um, how many of you are familiar with Manjushri? Oh, just a couple. Have you seen this Buddha with the big sword? No? No? Okay, we'll have to bring one in here. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to Martin about that. Um, 
Manjushri is always very good looking, very handsome. The most handsome deity uh, is Manjushri. And uh, the teaching around that is that our um, delusions make us ugly. And I always say this to people, I always tell them, if you practice for a while, you'll become more beautiful. <laughs> Very popular in California. <laughs> in California, I never teach about aging, nothing about aging, but just that if you practice, you will become more beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and it's true, because uh, when you practice, your self-consciousness starts to uh, decrease. And the, the way you check and recheck yourself uh, starts to decrease. And then um, you start to, in an embodied way, become more yourself. Because you're not checking yourself so much. And uh, on retreat, you're also not in an environment where other people are turning you into anything. So you start to become free to be yourself. And then you're more beautiful. And I always thought we should do before and after photos. <laughs> as like an Instagram campaign on our retreat. <laughs> yeah. Like, do you remember what Klaus looked like the first day? <laughs> and look at him <laughs> today. Amazing. So. Another thing about uh, Manjushri is that he's always like very, very well dressed. And the, the reason why is they say because um, Manjushri is just empty space. And the only way to recognize empty space is to, to, to uh, create beauty around the empty space. That's why um, if you just come into this Zen form, you might think, oh God, this is a little bit anal. But after a while, when you start getting the hang of it, you'll see, oh, this is so beautiful, actually. You know? All of us can fit in this tiny space and get around in such an elegant way with no talking. And that's true, is that actually we're all just empty space. We rely on empty space. Because we're just causes and conditions changing. Like you might relate to me as Michael and have all kinds of ideas. Oh, Michael. But actually, like, I don't know who that is. And I don't know who you see. I try to learn who, who you're seeing, but I don't know who it is. I don't know who I am. Do you know who you are? It's empty space. So we dress it up so we can recognize what it is. And the last thing is the sword. It's said that Manjushri's sword give, gives life and takes life away. Because Manjushri's sword is symbolic. And some of you, if you practice Iyengar or Ashtanga Yoga, you chant from a text called the Yoga Taravali uh, to Patanjali, who has uh, Asi, Chankachakrasi, do you know this chant? Who has this sword that's sharp on two sides, which is the same sword as Manjushri. It's the sword that cuts through what's real and what's not real. And that's what we're training in this practice. You know? Every time I bang on this thing, my notes go away. <laughs> <laughs> and
And the last thing about Manjushri is that uh, not only is there this sword, but Manjushri is always depicted as a teenager. If you look closely at Manjushri, my guess is he's always 16 years old. Just got his license. Because uh, Manjushri's wisdom is not to be confused with the wisdom of um, the elderly. In ancient India, it was considered that the elders were wise. So they created Manjushri as a young person to say there's also a different kind of wisdom. Not just the wisdom of life experience, but the wisdom of being able to cut through really sharply. Not holding on. It's the wisdom of a rain falling, or the wisdom of uh, the wind picking up in the bamboo. It comes as a surprise. Oh. Do you know the wisdom I'm talking about in your sitting? It's like you're sitting, you're caught in some like amazing delusion, and then you're like, oh, that's not real. <laughs> I've been invested in that one for so many years. Why am I still passionate about that? And very often, kids see the world like this, eh? They can see connections between things. They have this feeling of possibility. And that's why I always say in the meditation instruction, find the very beginning of your inhale. Like, just start from the very beginning. Not your theory about what the beginning is, but like the tiny sensations that make up what you're calling the inhale, the beginning of the inhale. Because that's beginner's mind. That's that fresh mind. That's the mind when Anna was sweeping and tuck, the pebble hit the bamboo. Dwelling on content in your meditation practice is very, very seductive. And it's one of the big differences between psychotherapy and meditation. Is that when content arises in meditative practice, we don't invest in it. We don't make it more interesting. We pull out our sword. We pull out the sword. So that we can see, oh, impermanence. And then we can have a more beautiful conduct. So, stage three, seeing the ox. Seeing who you really are. Stage four, catching the ox. But can you catch it? No. The catching the ox is the fantasy. Oh, I'm just going to remain in this place of non-reactivity. Oh, then the other side. The people you love at the beginning of this retreat will be the people who are annoying at the end of the retreat. And the people who are annoying at the end of the retreat, you're going to be crazy about it. At the beginning of the retreat, well, you'll be crazy about it at the end of the retreat. 
All you have to do is be upright in your body. Isn't it so easy? <coughs> so I want to end with a poem. Uh, this uh, poem is called Keeping Quiet by a wonderful poet named <coughs> Pablo Neruda. Are you okay, Gail? I've loved his poems, actually, and some of you might know lots of his poems, but I've never heard this one. And uh, someone just sent it to me, and it's really, I can't believe I missed this one. Uh, Now we will count to twelve, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language, and let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales. And the people gathering salt would look at their hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, Wars with fire, victory with no survivors. They would put on clean clothes and walk about with other people in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with inactivity. Life is what it's about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could just do nothing, Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now, I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I'll go. So we're not counting to 12, we count to eight. Eight days here to practice. We're just in our second day. So now that you've learned your job, and now that you know the routine, there's nothing really left to add. We're just gonna repeat this now. So here's my encouragement to you. Slow down. Slow down now. And pay finer attention to what's happening. And catch yourself and come back. You may never have the luxury or the health to be in such a safe space again for a while. And you don't know in the next month or the next years how you're going to be needed by your family or by your community So don't squander your time here. Use every moment 
is teaching you. The bamboo, the bells, food, the river, the silence, how to let go. And then when you sense the ox, let go of that also. So thank you.